0: So on December 31st, 1967, Bonnie Giroux was home for the weekend from college at her parents' house. And a roommate, Judy Michelson, decided she was going to tag along with her. So they went to her folks' place in Kaukana, Wisconsin. And they were pretty bummed out because they weren't able to watch the Green Bay Packers game that night when they were taking on the Dallas Cowboys because Kakana is only 20-ish miles south of Green Bay. And so back in that day, if you lived that close, then you experienced a blackout and you couldn't watch the game on TV. So they're sad about that. So it's time for the game and they're getting ready to turn it on the radio to listen that way. And her father, Richard, who's a pilot who has this little Cessna that he kept parked in one of their neighbor's barns for this little grass airstrip. Richard says, hey, I'm I'm thinking about flying up to see what's going on up at the stadium. Do y'all wanna go? And Bonnie is like, "Uh, no, it's too cold, dad. But Judy, a roommate, says, well, I'd like to go. He says, all right, well, let's go. And so she decides at the last minute, I think I'll take my camera. Sounds like a, a good thing to go document. So she grabs her camera. They go in the plane. They fly up, and they fly over Lambeau Field, and they get pretty low. They're somewhere between like 1,000, 1,500 square feet. If you watch footage of the game, you can actually see the plane in the background. And uh, Judy's snapping pictures along the journey, and they do this, they about freeze their tails off because it's negative 13 degrees on the ground, and so up in the plane, you can only imagine how cold it is, but they do their passes, they come back, they park, they get home, and it turns out that, yes, the Packers won this game, they're stoked about it, and it's a sweet little memory that for many years, they pretty much just forget about it. And those pictures that Judy snapped, well, they just ended up stored away until approximately 50 years later, Judy is in her home in Arizona, and in the closet, she stumbles across these boxes of these old Kodachrome slides, and she calls Bonnie, who still lives in Wisconsin, she says, hey, Bonnie, you, you want these pictures that I took from the plane? And Bonnie's stoked about this. She's like, well, Dad died in 2010. I'd love to have those to remember him. They'd be great. So she says, All right, I'll mail them to you. So Judy mails them to her. Bonnie gets the box. She opens them up, And when she opens this package, she's shocked at what she finds as she starts slipping these slides into the slide projector. Because she realized these pictures weren't of just any old football game. These pictures that were taken over the stadium were taken over the ice bowl. One of the most famous and the most cold, frigid games in the history of the NFL. And we're gonna throw a couple of these pictures up here so that you can see these that she took from the plane, gives you a really cool perspective because this was a historic game, and Bonnie realized these pictures I have in my hands, yeah, you know, my dad was in the plane, and Judy took these, but these are historic pictures. They need to be shared, and she ended up contacting the league, and NFL Films sent a crew, and they made this little mini movie called Ice Bowl from the Sky. You could check it out on YouTube. It is so cool. For 50 years, this chilly flight seemed just like a distant memory, this cute little story to tell at family gatherings. But Judy discovers these photos, and it completely reframes their memory of that day. It was no longer some random decision that a pilot of a little Cessna made on a whim. No, it was part of a bigger story. It was this little chunk of history that had become legendary. When they saw the bigger story, when they saw this is part of the ice bowl, their story found new significance you know for us in this strange season in the midst of this pandemic we have to ask ourselves you know do we kind of have that problem in a way in our life that we miss the bigger story we miss God's story today we're going to be thinking about the fact that well, we need to know where does my story fit into God's story and once we know where it fits what is it that i'm supposed to do about that because when it comes down to it at the end of the day your story if you follow Jesus and you go all in It's God's story. Your story is God's story. So I want to pray over our time that we're going to spend in God's word, and then we're just going to see what he does today, okay? Jesus, we come to you. Uh, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would be in this room with us today. I ask that you would be in every living room, in every bedroom, in every kitchenette, in every work break room, wherever folks happen to be watching today and streaming this, And I ask that you would um, be present to do a few things, Father. I ask that you would just open up our minds so that we can really see what it is you're saying to us and we can hear you. I pray you'll soften our hearts, uh, that you'll do the transforming work we can't do without you. And Jesus, I want to pray, Holy Spirit, I want to pray for your healing. I want to pray for every brother and sister, every family member, every community member, every person on this planet that has this disgusting virus wreaking havoc on their bodies, and I pray you would stop it in its tracks. I pray you would bring healing, Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus, I pray you would bring healing. I pray strength, and I pray perseverance for every doctor and every nurse, every healthcare worker imaginable. I pray that you would give them what they need I pray, Father, that you will do away with this virus. Do away with it. And as we worship today, Father, I just pray we won't be the same people that walk out that walked in here when we walk out of here. In your name we pray, amen. So if you would be willing to flip in your Bibles to Mark 14, we're going to start in verse 50. Hard copy is great. You can watch on the screen. If you are watching from home, hop on inside scc.org like Craig mentioned. You can hit Take Sermon Notes. Everything's going to be in there. We're actually going to have a handout at the end of the day. I'd encourage you to grab. Uh, for those of you in the room, it's on the little black table back here by the door. For those of you who are online, if you click on the Sermon Notes tab, uh, it actually is going to have the PDF download where you can check that out. So uh, we've been talking a lot about how we're going on this discipleship journey together, right? And sometimes most of the time, one of the most powerful ways to speak into our own story is to look at how God's working in other people's stories. So we're going to do that today, and we're going to look at the story of one of Jesus' really early disciples, and his name was John Mark. Sometimes he was just called Mark. And he wasn't one of the 12 disciples we typically talk about, but he was a younger guy who was around. He was probably a teenager when Jesus was on earth, and he followed Jesus, and he became part of this next generation of disciples that helped take the mission out into the world. And he actually wrote The Gospel of Mark, that we're about to read from, which was the first account that was put together in written form of Jesus' ministry. And John Mark, he gets about 10 shout outs in the New Testament, so he gets mentioned a decent amount. But his discipleship journey has this really interesting beginning as far as what's written down, because he's actually there when Jesus gets arrested just before he gets crucified and ends up on the cross. And so we're actually going to check this out. So here it is, Mark 14, starting in verse 50. So they come to arrest Jesus, and it says, All his disciples deserted him and ran away. One young man, following behind, was clothed only in a long linen shirt. And when the mob tried to grab him, he slipped out of his shirt and ran away naked. So the disciples are freaking out. Jesus is being arrested, and they're running away. And a young man escapes by slipping out of his clothes and running away naked. might seem like a pretty random detail, but we're pretty certain that this is Mark's way of saying, hey, I was that young man. I was that teenage guy. I was there. I went streaking for Jesus. That was me. And maybe, you know, rules of modesty in the ancient world meant he didn't feel like he could identify himself, but he kind of puts in this little note. He's there. This is early in his discipleship journey. He is so young, probably so clueless about so many things, but he's following Jesus There's probably excitement, getting to be around. He's a Jerusalem kid, and Jesus is in Jerusalem, and he's stoked to see what Jesus has been up to. Lives are being changed, people are being healed, miracles are being worked. It is a great time to be on this earth, and he had this curiosity, and all of a sudden Jesus gets arrested, and he's probably thinking, oh my gosh, he's running home, and you can only imagine his mom, like, why are you naked? Mom, you're not going to believe what's happening right now, and it becomes an afterthought. When I was talking to Jim Johnson, some of you maybe know Jim and Julie, he's one of our elders here at church. I remember talking to him about when he was kind of early in his spiritual journey. He'd grown up in church, but didn't really start growing and maturing his faith until he and Julie landed right here at this church. And Jim said, man, I was growing And God was changing me. It was just nuts. I just wanted to be around. Like on Sunday, I'd be there. I'd stack the chairs. I'd talk to everybody, whichever pastor it was each week who was going to lock the doors. I just wanted to talk to them. And I was the last person out here every week. And I just wanted to be around. I had this excitement about following Jesus and seeing what he was doing in me and through me. So I would ask you, is that where you find yourself right now in your discipleship journey? You know, do you have a lot of inexperience, but you're also kind of unfazed. You still got that like high going on. You're excited, not sure what's next. You know it won't always be the mountaintop and that the valleys are coming, but you know, I'm not, you're like, I'm not there yet. It's okay. Life's good. Faith is good. Following Jesus is great. This would be my question for you. Are you willing to obey the Holy Spirit when he asks you to take a big risk and take a step you wouldn't normally be comfortable with? If you are in that spot and you're young in your faith, are you willing to take a risk when he asks you to do it? Because you should be ready because it's coming. And it might be right now, it might be today, it might be part of this all-in thing, I don't know. John didn't just stay young and inexperienced, he he grew a little bit. So if you jump to Acts 12, we're going to be in verse 12, this is what happens next in his discipleship journey. So in Acts 12, verse 12, it says, uh, they went to the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many people were gathered for prayer. And when Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission to Jerusalem, they returned, taking John Mark with them. So now we find out John Mark, he's had a pretty good head start in life. He's had this example of his mom. uh, In his house, there have been these prayer gatherings hosted, which probably means if it's big enough to host a prayer meeting, they probably make a pretty decent living. There's a good chance they live in the upper city of Jerusalem, which is a really nice neighborhood. And... John Mark has had this example of his mom following Jesus. He's watched all these gatherings, and now he gets his shot because Paul and Barnabas are getting ready to go out on their first missionary journey, and they say, hey, John Mark, we want to take you with us. So he gets this chance to go and help spread the gospel. He gets to watch and help and learn, and it's so exciting for a kid that just grew up in Jerusalem. He's going to get to go to parts of the world he's never been to. This is exciting. They see something in this guy. I resonate with that because at one point when I was, how old was I? I was about 16. I got my first chance to do an internship here at the church. I remember Jason inviting me to do it. He basically said, but here's the deal. If you do this, you got to drop all your extracurriculars. You got to be all in right here. You need your full attention just on this. I remember being like, say what? I I don't want to just drop everything, but I couldn't get that bug. It's like God was saying, you need to sign on for this. And, and I did, and it was a good experience doing worship, hanging out with the youth group, I, and I interned then, and then the next thing you know, I, I interned another year, and thought, well, I, I think I want to go to school for this, and I did that, and SCC kept giving me a landing place on holidays and summer break, and I just kept interning and investing, and then all of a sudden, this chick that you're going to see on the screen showed up in my life, and uh, I realized, oh, wow, I, I can't just be an apprentice anymore. I've got to go like, get a job. Like, this is this is the real deal. And the next thing I know, she's like, I'm borrowing her hat and her scarf for some reason. 2007 was apparently a really weird season of life for me, <laughs> but it was good. And maybe that's where you find yourself now in your spiritual journey. You say, well, I'm not totally new at this. I'm getting my feet wet. I'm serving the church. I'm figuring out how my gifts work. I'm giving my time and my talents. And maybe somebody's discipling you, uh, whether it's one-on-one or you're in a group. It's like it's the best of times and the worst of times. And this would be my question to you. Are you willing to stay the course when things get really tough? Because usually as you start doing it, getting your feet wet, that's when the enemy really puts the sight on you and he starts coming at you. Are you willing to buckle down, catch your breath, and ask God for what you need? Because the valley is coming at some point and it'll grow you, but if you're not relying on Jesus, it'll break you. So are you willing to stay the course if that's where you're at in your discipleship journey? Well, that brings us to the next chapter of Acts 13. And John Mark, uh, this is where his journey gets a little bit dicey, because when you look at verse 5, it says, "...there," In the town of Salamis, they went to the Jewish synagogues and they preached the word of God. And John Mark went with them as their assistant. So here he is. He's doing his thing. He's helping out. Things look great. But jump to verse 13. Paul and his companions then left Paphos by ship for Pamphylia, landing at the port town of Perga. And there John Mark left them and he returned to Jerusalem. So right here in the middle of this journey, the opportunity of his life, He just leaves them and he returns home. And Luke, who's writing the book of Acts, he doesn't tell us why he does this. Is he homesick? Is it that he's questioning his calling? Is he just weary from the challenges that they've encountered? Well, it it doesn't say, but regardless, he just taps out. And the result of that is pretty bad. Because then we look at Acts 15, just a little bit further. Paul and Barnabas completed their first missionary journey, and they're getting ready to take off for journey number two. And it says in verse 37 of Acts 15, Well, Barnabas agreed, and he wanted to take along John Mark. But Paul disagreed strongly, since John Mark had deserted them in Pamphylia and hadn't continued with them in their work. And their disagreement was so sharp that they separated. Barnabas took John Mark with him, and sailed for Cyprus. So here they are, Barnabas, who happens to be... Who happens to be... Wow, thank you, Fly. Barnabas, who happens to be John Mark's older cousin, he says, well, hey, let's give the kid a second chance. Let's do this. And Paul's so put out, he's like, no, we're not giving him a second chance. It's only been a year or two, and he returned home. I'm, I'm not doing this. I don't trust that kid yet. And they end up parting ways. Barnabas says, well, fine, I'll go to Cyprus, and I'll take John Mark. And Paul's like, well, fine, I'll go on my journey, and I'll take this kid Silas, and I'll go do this. And in the end, of course, God, as he does, he redeems this, you know, because both of the guys get mentored It doubled the effort. More people were reached. Both John Mark and Silas went on to have great ministries in the church. But this disagreement wasn't pretty. It was nasty, and there were consequences, and there was fallout. And you got to wonder, John Mark, who had been growing and had this excitement, but at some point he taps out and he bails for whatever reason. What's going through his mind? Is he thinking, how did I do that? Why did I make that decision? had a friend in college who dated this chick way out of his league. She was just this awesome girl, and he was a solid guy. Uh, He was on the worship team with me. Good dude. But they got to this point where their relationship was a little bit rocky, and it just wasn't happening. They were butting heads, and all of a sudden, he just kind of on a whim just breaks off the relationship, and he, he just stops, and It was shocking to her. It shocked everybody who knew him. He actually went on a date with this other girl. We're like, what is going on? And after about two weeks, he realized, oh my gosh, what am I doing? The problem's not her. The problem's me. And he went back to her, and he said, hey, I I screwed up. I dropped the ball. If you'll give me another chance, I'd love for us to still be a thing. And she said, all right, I'll give you another shot. But here's the deal. You can't ever do that to me again. And he said, I won't and they eventually got married, and it worked out. But it was this really painful piece of that story when he tapped out, and he had to go back later and own up to tapping out and totally just start the journey of building trust all over again from the ground up. So if that's where you're at in your discipleship journey, and you maybe started strong, you were green, you started getting your feet wet, but for whatever reason, you all of a sudden tapped out, and you just stopped, stopped growing, stopped serving. I'd ask you this question. Are you willing to own up to the fact that you tapped out? Are you willing to get back to being all-in on your relationship with Jesus? Because if so, I'd encourage you, apologize, recommit. Maybe it's something you did, maybe it's something someone else did, I don't know. But if you need to confess and repent and get back on track, do it. Because if you're doing anything other than following Jesus, then you're missing the point. If your story is being lived and you think you can find it outside of God's story, that is not how life works. He's inviting you to embrace his story. He's giving you a second chance. So will you, after you tapped out, will you seize that second chance? Now, I like this turn that John Mark's story takes. Because several years go by, we're talking like at least, I think it's like 14 years. I looked up. So he's a much older guy, and Paul is writing letters all over the ancient world to all these churches that are being planted on these missionary journeys. He tries to keep tabs with them. He's like a spiritual father, uncle figure to these guys. And towards the end of his letters, a lot of times, he would give little shout-outs, and he would start saying, hey, this person sends you greetings. It's kind of like if you hear someone's on the phone, and you say, hey, tell them I said hi, and they're like, oh yeah, Mike says hi. It's like, oh, they say hi too. It's kind of that thing, but in an ancient letter form. And so John Mark starts being mentioned in some of Paul's letters after 14 years. So let's check out this first shout-out that he gets here. This is in Colossians 4.10. Paul says, well, Aristarchus, who's in prison with me, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, Barnabas' cousin. As you were instructed before, make Mark welcome if he comes your way. So he puts in a good word for Mark. That's good. Seems that things have kind of thawed out a little bit. Things have softened. This is good. Well, then you jump, and there's another letter. He writes to Philemon, verse 24. And at the end, he says, well, he sends greetings, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my co-workers. Well, now Mark's being called a co-worker. That's a change of tune. And then another letter, 2 Timothy 4:11. Paul's kind of at the end of his life, end of his ministry. He's a little bit bummed, but he's stayed the course, and he says, well, only Luke's with me. Bring Mark with you when you come, for he'll be helpful to me in my ministry. It's crazy how different Paul's take is. He says, welcome Mark if he comes your way. He says, he's my coworker." He says, Timothy, bring Mark with me. I, I'm down. I need some help. And the guy I want to help me is Mark. The guy I want to help me is the guy that flaked out on the very first missionary journey that we took. The dude who wouldn't give the apprentice a second shot, he's changed his tune. And we might think, well, it's just time that healed those wounds. That was all that happened. But it was more than that. Paul had a chance to watch John Mark recommit and own the fact he tapped out, and he watched him stay faithful to his calling. He saw Jesus bring fruit in his ministry. He saw him grow him. He watched him mature, and he ends up receiving him as a brother, and not just a brother, but like a colleague and equal, because John Mark stayed the course, and he embraced his role in God's story. But Paul wasn't the only one who gave him props. There's one more mention the last one, the last time in the New Testament that John Mark is given a shout out. And it's in 1 Peter 5.13. And he says, your sister church here in Babylon, which was Rome, they send you greetings, and so does my son Mark. So here's the apostle Peter around the same time, and he says, well, yeah, John Mark's my son. And at this point, Peter had taken all the stories about his time with Jesus on earth, the three-ish years he had to watch Jesus do his thing and preach the word and heal diseases and raise people from the dead and work miracles and do all these things. And he'd given these to Mark. And Mark wrote these down in the Gospel of Mark because they wanted to have a written record, not just an oral record that might get lost. And they were sending this all over the world so that everybody could hear Jesus' invitation to be a disciple and they could say yes to that. So John Mark, at this point, he is much older He's not just mature in age. He's mature in his faith. He is battle tested. He has seen stuff. He's in it for the long haul. And he's embraced God's story. He's embraced his role in God's story and he sees how his story fits into it. You've probably heard of a dude named John Newton. He lived back in the 1700s and he was a slave trader originally. Eventually, he became a pastor and a hymn writer. He wrote Amazing Grace, which is not only the most popular hymn, I think it might be the most sung song in the history of the world at this point. And when you look at John Newton's story, we're going to show a picture of him. This is him, and uh, he kind of had the typical hair of his day, looked like he enjoyed having a fudge round or two or whatever the equivalent was in that day. And he was the captain of a slave ship in 1748. He was in his early 20s. And one day, they were in this storm, and he knows, he's seen a few storms, he's been on ships since he was like 11 years old, and he knew, we're probably not getting out of the storm. And There was one point where their ship is about to go over, and he said it was the strangest thing, because it was almost like God stuck a hand and just held the ship up. And he knew right then, this wasn't some accident, God saved my life, God saved my shipmates' lives, all the slaves that were on that ship, he saved all our lives. He said he knew then, and he called that his turning day. So, this is 1748. Well, eventually, he turns his life over to Jesus. He realizes, wow, these these aren't slaves. These are like human beings. These are my fellow human beings. I can't be involved in this trade anymore. And God starts working on him, and he feels this call to ministry. But he doesn't get this chance to be ordained and take a church until 1764. So it takes like 16 years, and he's in his 40s. You maybe think, oh, such a missed opportunity. But you look at the record, not just the hymns that he wrote, but the ministry that he had and the generation he brought up and how he was able to help mentor a bunch of the guys who were trying to end the slave trade, which ended just a few months before he died in 1807. And he ended up having this super fruitful ministry for over 40 years. Some of you are maybe in that point. So I'm not young in life. I'm definitely not young in my faith. I've seen some stuff. And you've bought in. And my question for you would be this. If that's where you're at in your discipleship journey, are you willing to go all in to invest even more intentionally than you ever have before? Because there's a sense in which you've been there and you've done that. You know, you've invested your time and your talents and your treasures and you just kept doing it. You've been faithful. But this community has a lot of hope and healing that it needs. I'll say this, the people in the walls of this church, we have a lot of hope and healing that we need because it's got to start inside. It always works inside out. That's how God works. And all of you who are in that phase where you're mature in your faith, you have to be the ones to lead the charge. We need you. You are not too old. It is not too late. God's timing is perfect. If we're going to go all in, we need you. what's so cool is that when they've studied how things work, there's something called the herd mentality. And the herd mentality basically says in any group that you're in, if just 5% of the people in that group will make an intentional decision to go a certain way and behave a certain way and do a certain thing, the other 95% inevitably will start to shift. And they will start to follow that same course of action. So let's talk conservatively. Our church family during this pandemic season, we'll say maybe 600 people. 600 people, so what's 5% of 600? Well, that's 30 people. Well, you know how many families stepped up and on our advanced commitment night said, hey, we'll go all in, we'll set the standard, we'll invest. There were 32 families that went all in and they said, we'll do it. And they committed $900,000. Towards the, like Craig said, almost 3 million. So I will ask you, if that's you, will you go all in to invest in others more intentionally than you ever have? Will you take a step? Even though you've already taken like 78 steps, will you be ready for the next one, even if it's a big one? So we walked through John Mark's journey. In the end, it's kind of a feel-good story. And I ask, well, if you're young in your faith, you're super green, this is what I ask you. I said, are you willing to obey the Holy Spirit when he asks you to take a risk? And if you were in the spot where you say, I'm getting my feet wet, I'm starting to invest, we ask, okay, well, are you willing to stay the course when things get tough? If you're somebody who tapped out, we said, well, are you willing to own up, get back on track, and go all in on Jesus? And if you're someone who's mature in your faith, we just said, will you go all in more intentionally than ever before on Jesus and his mission. So that's John Mark's story. It's his discipleship journey, speaking into ours. But maybe you're saying, how does this story, how does my story fit into God's story? I don't even totally understand when you say God's story. That seems big and ethereal and random. So what do you mean by that? Well, what if there's a fresh way we can look at God's story? That's what we're going to do. That's how we're going to close our time. So we say all the time here at Sec. That the only way that we can live life the way it's supposed to li- be lived, the only way we can find our story in Hot fits and how it fits in God's is through Jesus, only through Jesus. So we know that. Now, if I ask you, hey, tell me what the world's like, if you were to turn on the news or you were to jump on social media, we're going to say this is the world, what would you see? Well, you start looking at all the violence, you start looking at all the war, you look at the pandemic that's raging. You see, the world is a pretty messed-up place. I'm going to draw us right here. This is you and me. What's interesting is we all agree about that. The world is jacked up, it's screwed up. Evil is abounding, brokenness is everywhere. We actually find agreement. It's one of the few things people in this world will agree on. But just like hunger points to the fact that food exists, and thirst points to the fact that drink exists, the fact that the world is a broken place seems to point to the fact that it wasn't all supposed to be that way. That either there once was a world that was designed for good or that there will be a world that was good. Well, and in the Christian worldview, the way we see it when we follow Jesus, we say, well, that is true because God created the world and it was good. and He created us and it was good. And it was a beautiful system because uh, the world took care of us. We took care of it. We took care of each other. The other folks took care of us. God blessed us. We blessed God back. And it was good. So the whole world was, let's see if I can squeeze this in here, designed for good. What happened? Well, the problem was we decided instead of making it all about God, who designed everything, well, we're going to make it all about us, what we want. And when that happened, well, it broke the world, it broke our relationship with each other, and it also broke our relationship with God. Really ugly, nasty thing. So that the world was broken by evil. Fortunately, even though everything was broken, our relationships with each other, our relationship with the planet, our relationship with God, he decided, no, I can't, I can't leave him like that. So he comes down to this broken world. These squiggly lines are brokenness, in case you were wondering. And he comes... As God made man, he comes as Jesus. And the beautiful thing about that was that all of a sudden, here we are. Things didn't have to be broken anymore. Our relationship with God could be healed. Our relationship with each other could be healed. We could start... Heal in our relationship with the planet. You see, because when Jesus came, he died. And when he died, all of this junk, all of this evil died with him, every bit of it. And then he raised to life. We had a chance for life, new life with God, with each other, with the world. And everything got restored for better. The question we'd have to ask okay, well, that sounds really great. How do I respond to that? Well, we still got this broken world. And we got Jesus who came in the midst of it. And when Jesus came, he basically started a revolution. And when Jesus started this revolution, he wanted everybody to have a chance to follow him. There's a bunch of us now. so that we could experience the healing in our relationships and with God, and then we could take that healing and that love that we experience, and we could start going out into the world and sharing that so that all of us are sent together to heal. Now, it might sound really good. Well, wait a minute. This sounds great. Why can't we just jump straight from this world that is broken, by evil, and be right here. Well, the problem is, if we try our own efforts, well, the brokenness is almost limitless. The sin in this world, if we just try human effort, we're never going to be able to bridge this gap. We need what Jesus gives it. We need the resources he makes available. We need to go through him, which is the Holy Spirit living in us, guiding us. It's the community of people that are around us. We need that if we're going to do this. And so, I would ask you, if this is God's story, where do you fall in this story? Do you live right here, where you think the world's just good, everything's fine, no big deal? Do you find yourself right here, where you're overcome by the evil in this world, maybe even the evil inside of yourself, and that just weighs on your every thought, on your mind, it colors how you see the world, colors how you see every relationship, how you view yourself and your identity. Is that where you are? Because you also might be here, though. You say, well, no, 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 I've, I'm not really involved in Jesus' mission, but I, I've made a commitment to follow him. Or maybe you're here. And you say, well, yeah, I follow him, and I'm trying to find my place on this mission, but there's still questions that I've got. So where are you? Well, if you're here, and you say, well, I, I think the world's a pretty good place. The world's basically good. Well, we already kind of agreed on the fact. Well, no, no there's a big issue. The world's a very screwed up place. And so if you just say everything's good, well, you're avoiding reality. So if that's you, I would say, are you willing to consider the fact that maybe the way you've looked at the world isn't reality? If you're here and you're overcome by evil in the world and how you see that in your own life, I want you to know Jesus offers you two things that you desperately, desperately need, all of us need. First of all, he offers us hope. See, his mission to save the world has been going on for 2,000 years. And when you look at all these movements that have gone through our culture and worldwide, I mean, we're talking human rights, civil rights, rights for the disabled, the abolitionist movement, boom, 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 all that. Jesus' followers have been at the forefront of all of those movements of bringing that healing to the world. So he offers you that hope. You can experience that hope if you have Jesus. But he also offers you forgiveness, which means that if you say, hey, I want to be on this mission, I want to go and be a part of healing the world, well, you can experience that. And you don't have to have any shame. You don't have to have any guilt of jumping on board that. None. None at all. Now, maybe you're here. And you said, all right, yeah, I'm on board. I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus. And what I would tell you is, remember Jesus' words where he said, all right, but if you're not involved in this, and you're not a part of this mission, then you're a part of this. If you aren't involved in this, but you say you're this, well, you've made it all about you, and you're kind of missing the point. So I would say, are you willing to say, wow, I did miss the point. I got to get on board and be a part of this mission. And if you're someone who's here, you say, no, no, I, I, I know where I'm at in this story. I'm not just here. I'm here. I am involved in this mission to the world, I'll just throw a reminder out to you, and that is that it can be so tempting in our world right now to think that we're just going to try hard, and we're going to buckle down, and we're going to white-knuckle this thing, and that's how we're going to meet the world's brokenness. But nothing that we try to offer to bridge this gap, not our anger, not our pride, not our fear, it won't do that. The only way that we can go and be truly healed and take this healing out into the world and have it color every relationship and every moment of our life is through Jesus and his resources. And no matter where you're at in this, Jesus invites us to do a couple things. We can change our perspective and see the reality of how things are, and we can find his forgiveness. We can experience his love in a way that completely colors us, that completely changes relationships around us and we can start taking this out to heal the world and we can trust him in a way we've never done and we can let him be the leader of our lives. So no matter how you answered in these four places, I would ask you, are you willing to let Jesus be the leader of your life? Are you willing to go on this discipleship journey? Are you willing to continue on this journey? Because at the end of the day, your story Is God's story. It was John Mark's story. It was John Newton's story. And it's your story. So Jesus, we've come and we've looked at this journey that John Mark took. We've looked at the journey that our church has taken collectively. And as we're going all in, what's going to come next? And we've just looked at your story, God, and we've tried to find ourselves in this spot. And I pray that no matter where we are, that you will take us the step that we need to take. I pray you'll do the heavy lifting to transform us that we cannot do on our own. I pray that you'll work in us and through us in a way we've never seen. I pray that we will, this week, see that our story is just a little piece of the bigger story, just like those slides taken a thousand feet up from the ice bowl. Father, I pray, will you work in us and help us respond to you and what you're doing in the way you want us to do it. In your name we pray. Amen. So as we head out, I would invite you to jump on insidesec.org and get the link. You can actually learn to share God's story in this way. Uh, It's on the PDF that you can click on there in the sermon notes. Any of y'all in the room, you can grab one on the back, and you can learn to tell this story in this new, fresh way. And if in the midst of this, you said, man, I need help with this, jump on inside sac.org. Click, I want to talk to a pastor. Click, I need prayer, and we want to walk with you. So go and know that your story is God's story. Go take healing to the world, and we'll see you next week. I love y'all. Catch you soon.